Hello, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. Today, Henry and I will be talking to a behavioral health specialist, Dr. Ham, on the effects that COVID-19 has had on mental health. Dr. Ham, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical background? Sure, sure. So I'm the, the lead physician at IC, which stands for Integrated Addiction Care. My primary is family medicine, and then I did the addiction medicine fellowship. So my specialty is in addiction medicine. And so we care for patients that have a substance use disorder. And our model of care includes kind of the full kind of wraparound services. So we take care of patients, um, obviously, that have their substance use disorder. We address their mental health. A lot of times patients that are self-medicating, for example, they also have a co-occurring disorder, mental health disorder, such as anxiety, depression, bipolar. So we care for those patients or those aspects. Not only do I counsel a patient, but then we have additional counseling with our LPC, which is a licensed professional counselor. So they also provide counseling. We're also heavily involved in case management. It's important that we address all their aspects of care to get the best outcome. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's perfect. Henry, can you kick us off and tell us what you want to accomplish with the episode? Thanks, Jake. Sean, Jake and I are awfully glad to have you join us today. COVID-19 has been a very stressful time for, for anyone, but I would suspect it's been extremely stressful for those who are struggling with substance use and perhaps misuse. Can you give me some perspective on what you're seeing uh, as a consequence of uh, living in the life of yes, COVID-19 in the last two or three, four months, please? Yes, sir. So the Washington Post had uh, recently an article saying that overdose rates are up nationally starting in March. I think they went up by 18% uh, and they escalated March, April, and May. I think May was 46% nationally. And if you look at Shelby County, what we're seeing here, it's the same thing. So there's been a lot of spike alerts. There's been more overdoses, more substance use disorder than ever before. In fact, more people have died in Shelby County from overdose-related deaths than they have from COVID-19. As of the 27th, June 27th this year, 199 people have died from overdose. Patients who have substance use disorder, because they're, we're asking them to self-isolate because of the pandemic, they end up losing their support system, right? They don't have their recovery system in place. And that obviously makes them more vulnerable for relapse. I think you could also say that the community in and of itself is probably more anxious because of what's happening currently. That's even more felt with, with people with a substance use disorder. And are you seeing that with just opioids or are you seeing that with other substances like alcohol? You know, what I was speaking about earlier was just specifically to opioids, but you're correct. We're seeing a lot more patients with alcohol as well, alcohol use disorder. This article on the BMJ. I believe that just talked about the amount of alcohol or the, the purchasing of alcohol and how much it's increased over the past several months in the UK. So I would not be surprised. No, it's yeah, correct. In fact, you know, I would say that our practice, so we've, we never closed uh, since, since this, the pandemic started, we have kind of changed a lot in how we treat patients, as you can imagine, but the practice itself, patients are still, you know, we're still getting new patients almost every day and more, I would say more alcohol than in the past. And your practice is very team-based. How have y'all adapted given the limitations of in-person treatment with COVID-19 and the pandemic? So 
prior to the COVID-19, I'd say 95% of our visits were in person. And then once the COVID-19 hit, every, it's kind of flip-flopped. So now 95% of our patients were doing via telemedicine or virtual encounters. Now I still see patients, but I'm, I'm taking all the necessary precautions. We've got the face mask. We have plexiglass shields. Uh, up until last week, I've been walking outside and with visiting with patients, but that's kind of with the heat, it's kind of thrown a little bit of a wrench into my, into that, that point. So, <laughs> and you know, the, the rest of the office has done the same. So our IOP group has gone virtual. Case management is the same thing where they're doing everything via either Zoom or FaceTime, any, anything we can use to actually connect with the patient. I would, I would also add that I feel like because we're doing the telemedicine, we almost overcompensate where we, we have like, in other words, I'll spend time with the patient and then I'll make sure my case management reaches out and connects with the patient. Uh, we've also, I have another uh, employee, her name's Bethany. She'll try to reach out to every single patient at least once a week. We're trying to overcompensate for not having the real tangible kind of visit to make sure we stay connected, you know, with everybody. So have you seen your volumes go up for those patients, given that there is a lot more isolation right now and a lot more self-medicating? Yeah, I think the volume continued to kind of increase. I don't know that it has slowed down. As you can imagine, though, we've seen less ER kind of referrals. So, you know, we do the, we've always done the telemedicine in the ERs. And because people are nervous about going to the ER, I think that part of the reason why we're not getting as many consults I think since we weren't connecting with people as well as we'd like and kind of meeting them where they're at, we started the 1-800-CONSULT line. It's been pretty good. I've gotten calls actually from patients or people wanting to kind of get, find out more information, uh, how to treat their particular problem. But I've also had a lot of people with loved ones are calling me because they're saying, okay, what do I do? Here's what's happening to what you kind of said earlier. My son, his drinking has gotten out of control. Right. And because of that, I don't know how to convince him or what's the right approach to get him to recognize that he has this problem. Hey, Sean, let me ask you a question. And, and this has been witnessed by other, other well-established telemedicine platforms. You know, they usually a law for pediatrics or some basic family practice, behavioral health. Uh, and what's been found, I'm, I'm just curious on your perspective on this, what they have found is that the, the behavioral health platforms that's been offered by some of the large national platforms, it has a very high adoption rate because the caller uh, feels comfortable being in their environment as opposed to being perhaps in an office environment where that's, that's, that's your world. Is that a, your experience? I realize that's subjective. No, no, you're right. And that is, that is a true statement. I think people feel more comfortable when they're in their own safe environment. Um, so no, I, I think people have embraced the telemedicine pretty quickly. It's interesting. People ask me, you know, what I think about it. I think it's, it's certainly given me a lot of insight into my patients as well, right? So I'm seeing patients in their either home environment or they're at work. Uh, I've been pleasantly surprised when I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, I believe my patients, but I'm like, he did have a, he does have a job. He's at work right now, you know, but it's also given me insight too, where I'm sitting here, you know, telling, thinking I'm, you know, I'm doing a great job. And then talking to them and they're lighting a cigarette and it's they're in a house coat and it's 11 30. clearly there's more work to be done 
any numbers, any thoughts on recidivism? Recidivism has always been a such an issue around substance misuse and, and use with, with habituation. Any sneak previews on, on how you feel telemed is going to be able to conquer recidivism rights among uh, those who are habituated? So, no, I don't have any, I don't have a number per se, but again, what's nice about it is when it comes to addiction medicine or anything, really, there's, there's barriers to care, right? So specifically with our patients where we have to see them sometimes once a week or once a month or, you know, a, a fr very frequent, well, they've got to be able to get childcare. There's transportation issues, right? There's, they have to leave work. Some of my pay, I think it's really helped them to actually be more compliant and to kind of stay on task and stay focused, you, you know? Now, again, I think it's given me insight to identify others where it's like, okay, this this is fine for now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But in the future, you know, this is where I would probably continue the in-person visits with them. Yeah, I know from talking with some of my primary care colleagues that no-show rates for telemedicine visits are much lower than those yes. in-person visits. Have you, you all found similar? That's right. But it's wonderful from a physician's standpoint, like I've got it set up where we have a virtual waiting room so I can grab patients and basically it cuts down on the drama in the office for one thing. That's really nice, you know, <laughs> but it also allows you to be uh, very efficient because as soon as you finish with one visit, you know, 30 minutes, you're moving right on to the next one. There's not this kind of lag time. That brings up a great question then, Sean, because that, that to me, I, I'd never thought of a virtual waiting room. It lets you officially move through patients. They're not aggregate. They're not all in the waiting room with well, each other, which sometimes can be a little off-putting. How do you record or capture your interactions with, with these patients just for documentation purposes? How do you do that? So we're not recording the actual visit. Um, but what I mean, typically what I end up doing is actually when I'm speaking with a patient, so I'll minimize the picture. So I'll have the picture of a patient up in the top you know, uh, whatever left corner of my screen, mm -hmm. I'll have my note up and then I can review the note from the previous visit or, you know, kind of uh, continue the visit that, that way. That's how I'm, I'm doing it, which allows me to, you know, do the note and everything. Uh, wow. So you, can, you can view the past note and then a split screen, view the past note, yes, view sir. the current documentation piece that you're capturing as you're discussing with the patient, then yet have the, the camera uh, visible uh, for both of you Correct. at the same time. So you just divide the screen up so you can you can capture the current information. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's been pretty good. And I mean, we're constantly modifying this. We didn't start out like this, right? We are a little bit clumsy, but it's kind of like um, the virtual rating room that we were having problems because with our scheduling, like every office, the, our scheduling system used to have to schedule them, you know, so many blocks apart. And someone no-shows and they're not there, I don't want to sit around for 30 minutes waiting on the next patient. I can just grab another one. And that was my fellow's idea, actually, is Billy Davis. He's pretty tech savvy. So we, he's the one that helped me create the virtual uh, waiting room. Oh, that's, that's pretty smart. Let's go back to your patient population and the effects that COVID has had on it. Do you have any insights into the healthcare community as a patient and how they have fared as far as their mental health has gone with regards to COVID-19? No, I don't. Like, I know we've stepped up to the plate, you know, 
uh, our office we have, uh, I can only imagine the the stress that the ER and the the nurses and everyone's you know feeling. Um, we obviously we do care for impaired professionals, but I'm not really seeing a difference in like I'm not seeing an increase right now. But I I, I would imagine there's you know more stress within the healthcare community. Yeah, I guess that's, that's comforting to know that you haven't had a large influx of new patients from the healthcare community. But uh, I have heard, and you know, we all feel just a lot of that increased stress level throughout the throughout the community, and just hope that they can get. I know we have options for them to get help if they need it, but just wanted to know if if you'd seen any trends or heard of any you know trends within within that patient population. I, I haven't yet, but I mean, I, I can only imagine. So this goes back to your earlier question as well. I asked this to the group, what are some of the reasons you think we're seeing more overdoses or why are some patients relapsing? And it's interesting because they've said, well, obviously, you know, we already mentioned there's the, there's the isolation, the social isolation aspects of it. But also they're, they're saying it's the, it's the fact that, you know, they've been furloughed and they're, you know, an idle mind is the devil's playground. They've got nothing to do. They're, they no longer have their routine or structure. Uh, and yet, but yet at the same time, money can also be a trigger. So they're, because they're getting money, still getting money from unemployment, you know, it's a trigger for them. And you kind of put the combination of isolation, lack of support, lack of recovery network, along with the other aspects, it ends up, it ends up being a, kind of a recipe sometimes for relapse. For sure. Have you noticed any changes since things have started to reopen? Not yet. I think that people are still very anxious. You have a group of patients that are kind of like fearless and who cares and this doesn't exist. You know, it's not real. COVID's not real and they're, you're, they're not going to wear a mask, you know. And then you have others that are, are talking about those, uh, those people and are very stressed because they're, they're always asking me, doc, tell me what you think about COVID-19 and, you know, where are we going? They were also, as you can imagine, pretty stressed about, everyone was concerned about the racial tension. So that came up in a lot of visits as well. And I think just anxious, they were just anxious about kind of the world and where it was kind of going or what, since all the news was doom and gloom. People have quit watching the news. It's interesting. A little off the subject, but a vulnerable population to me are those that suffer from variable mood disorders. And it, it may not be the extreme of calling it a bipolar disorder, but, but that seems to be an at-risk group. And my training led me to feel like they spend about 90% of their time below the median in their behavior, and then they, they'll go above the midline behavior and become a little bit uh, hypomanic, and it's that it's that mood fluctuation that sometimes is exacerbated by a situation like COVID nineteen. Are you seeing a do you see a fair number of patients that you would diagnose as having a variable mood disorder? Or that does that comprise yes. a fair number of your cases? Do you think? Or? No, no, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, in, with substance use disorder, period. You know, I think it's the sixty to seventy percent of the patients have a co-occurring disorder bipolar, anxiety, depression. And so, yeah, uh, obviously stressors can exacerbate those and, and make things worse. So even if a medication was working at one time because of the situation, it's not as effective and you do kind of have to make adjustments. I'm seeing a lot of uh, um, patients complaining of insomnia more than normal. You know, again, that's a tricky thing to treat as well. It's not so easy. 
because some of the drugs aren't so good. Anyways. Great visiting with Jake and me today and, and learning a lot about what's going on with uh, addiction medicine and the extra tension that COVID-19 has placed on those who have use and misuse. Are, are you involved uh, in uh, additional training? Are there fellows that, that also are interested in programs such as what you provide? Uh, yes, yes. Um, so, hey, first, thank you for having me. This was good. This was um, very, it was a lot of fun. But, right, so what's happening with addiction medicine is there's not a lot of academically trained physicians that are practicing, that we have practicing addiction medicine to actually meet the need. And because of that, you know, we have the fellowship program through Baptist uh, Memorial Education. And so, Something that I, I know you're proud of, or everyone's proud of, is that we have a grant that we just obtained. It's a HRSA grant. There weren't many in the country that got it. I think San Diego or San Francisco only beat us by $165. They got $165 more than we did. But the point is, is it takes our fellowship program, which we had a slot for, you know, two a year. Okay. That's, you know, and, and again, it's an ACGME accredited fellowship program. But it puts it from two a year to, for, to for us to have a total of five. So we'll be training five uh, addiction medicine fellows per, per year for the for the next five years, and and that is going to have a great impact, um, particularly hopefully in Tennessee in this area, but also in other places as well where there's such a, a shortage. So Do you yeah. have fellows currently in the program with you, Sean? Yes, sir. I, so I've got one right now, Billy Davis. He's, he started, again, off cycle since it's a brand new fellowship program, right? We just got it. I've got two more starting ones. Uh, one started actually today's her first day. She is still, she's, you know, going through the orientation and everything. I'll have another one starting at the end of this month. And I have a, I have an opening for two more fellows this year. Now, again, keep in mind, we there's a slot for two more just because we just got the grant so like you know i think i think it's been three weeks maybe a month or so we've been scrambling to try to fill those uh, other two slots that's great i mean that's definitely very promising especially given the opioid epidemic not to mention the effects that covid 19 pandemic has had on substance abuse disorder it's definitely going to be really needed oh no it's, it's it really it truly is needed big time Thank you, Sean, for joining us on Right Cared Baptist, and thank you to the audience for listening. Remember, you can go to the show notes to find the link to the CME survey, and we will be back next week with a new episode. Thank you.